We live, we're doing it, doing it live. All right, here we are. Hope everyone's having a good uh, Saturday. That's when I'm recording this. Um, it's pretty beautiful out here. I'm not baking as much as I normally do in this Jeep when I do these things, but we'll see where I'm at at the end. Uh, like I said yesterday in my stream that I did in the morning, I wanted to do a video about guns, gun violence, mass shootings, talk a little bit about the first video I made, and then we'll unpack a couple other things. So here's where we're going. We're going to look at the Dayton and El Paso shootings, see how they're like, see how they're different. We'll plug in uh, Midland, Odessa, uh, where it makes sense. Uh, then we're going to look at this Pew Research article that just came out that's like th three weeks old, very up-to-date data about gun violence, about shootings, and kind of see how that plays into um, the topic of gun violence and, you know, are we on the right track? Are we off? Do we, where can we make corrections? But what's the data say basically? And then, uh, the NRA, I looked at the NRA, I looked at, uh, campaign finance stuff. And so we'll talk about the NRA, how influential is the NRA, how much do they give specifically? How do they compare with other organizations that might be similar? Um, and then lastly, I'll kind of give a challenge about opinions, about what's it look like to form an opinion and share an opinion, whatever. So, but first off, you know, I, I personally wanted to do something that I knew would have a super effective um, impact on ending gun violence. So I, I, I cut my gun in half. It's, you know, I'm like, we've got we to gotta end gun violence and this is one less gun off the streets. And so we're, you know, it's done. This is one less gun that's going to be out there um, killing people indiscriminately. And so I, you know, I just had to break it in half because I knew that that would be a really effective way to end uh, gun violence in our country. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's a Ruger 10-22 breakdown. It comes into two pieces. Uh, that was just a joke. I know there are disingenuous people, not disingenuous, there are genuine people who make disingenuous criticisms against people who uh, do want to break their guns in order to have some impact or cut their gun in half in order to have some impact on you know gun violence in the U.S. Good for them, but I would say it's not a super effective means. At least that's not what the data tells me. But we'll get into that. So kind of to do a little bit of history, a little bit of background here. So the first video I ever made was about mass shootings. It was after Parkland, and I just got really sick of the way it was being covered. It was such a tragedy. All those kids dying was such a tragedy. Um, and I just felt like the way it was being discussed was really simplistic and that if the goal is solutions, we have to have a conversation that revolves around facts, data that guide us towards solutions, not things that are, you know, hip or sexy or make good sound bites. And so I talked about in that video that it's not just one thing and that if anyone just gives you one simple answer, uh, to, you know, about gun violence or about mass shootings, that it's kind of the equivalent of just eating fast food when you're really hungry. So, you know, it might sound good and you're like, after something bad happens, you want an answer, you want something simple that you can digest and blame or whatever. And it's and it might sound nice to say, oh, the NRA or oh, AR-15s or oh, mental illness or whatever. Um, but that's the, that serves the same effect for your mind as a Big Mac or some other fast food crap would for your body. It might satisfy you in the moment, but if that's all you take in, 
then you're going to suffer physically. Your physical health is going to suffer. And if all you take in are oversimplified, uh, reductive, and unproductive answers that aren't really data-driven, then you're going to suffer in your ability to understand and think about what might actually be effective. Because it's like a mental fast food diet, basically, if you just have all these simple sound bites as the main thing that you use to inform your opinion. So that's what I talked about in that video. And so I talked about mass shootings as a pie. It wasn't meant to be an exhaustive list, but I said, look, here are some pieces of this pie. Um, so a couple of things I mentioned were uh, internal motivations, uh, red flags, location security, so hard targets versus soft targets, firearm accessibility, popular media, uh, etc. And so I'm going to look at, see, are those still the things that are relevant? If we look at El Paso, if we look at Dayton, um, I'm not going to cover all those. I'm not going to go back through that video again. I'll put a link if you want to watch it. Um, I'd strongly encourage you to do that. Uh, I, the only, It's not great production quality, but I just I don't make PowerPoint slides anymore, and I don't like editing videos. This is just easier. Um, but I would encourage you to watch it. But we are going to look at mostly red flags and the media component um, and see, are, is this relevant? Does this play into Dayton and El Paso? And then I think there's some interesting comparisons to make between Dayton and El Paso to see, you know, because obviously the end result of violence and destruction were the same, but there were factors that make them different that kind of, they're instructive in helping us understand mass shootings. So in terms of the internal motivation, societal factors, El Paso was the one that got a lot of media attention. The guy in Dayton, it just seems like was just kind of crazy, to be honest with you. Um... He had a like a rape and a kill list when he was in high school. The dude is totally unhinged. His friends were saying that he's on a bunch of drugs, was on meth and other stuff. So he was just he was just wasn't well in the head. Um, so his factor seemed to be the fact that he was just a really tormented person inside, and he wanted to take that out on people. That's what we know is best right now. Uh, the El Paso got a lot more coverage because we know uh, a lot of his motivations. Uh, the media focused on the aspect of immigration. He drove basically like five, 600 miles to go to El Paso, and he said that he wanted to kill Mexicans. I mean, the dude was motivated by stemming, in his mind, threats coming into the country. Obviously, that's a distorted and evil perspective, but that was one of his motivators. Now, he was also motivated by, he said, we're destroying the environment. Um, he said that I don't have an economic future, so why not? Uh, automation was a concern of his, etc. So those were also factors internally um, that didn't get as much attention because, you know, him being a person who wanted to go and kill Mexicans, that's just more newsworthy, understandably so, because of just how visceral of a response it elicits in good people to say, that's crazy, that's immoral. Um, but there's another factor that I wish would have gotten more attention, which is he was heavily influenced by the New Zealand shooter. He says this in his manifesto. He mentions that guy multiple times. He mentions the influence that it had on him. And I wish that would have gotten some attention. I wonder if the media in some ways uh, were maybe experienced some shame or remorse for the, how much attention they gave the New Zealand shooter. Because it's obvious this guy in El Paso read the New Zealand Shooters Manifesto and he said, this makes a lot of sense. This is influencing me. Maybe I can have that same influence on other people. So he writes a manifesto that's basically a guide and an explanation because he wanted to emulate the guy in New Zealand. So we saw that as we 
put a lot of attention, made that dude famous in New Zealand, put his manifesto out there, talked about it. This guy in El Paso was like, I could do that. People will listen to me. I can get my ideas out there. Um, and so he was motivated by that. So as I will mention and have mentioned before, we got to quit making these guys famous. Like, stop incentivizing crazy people to do crazy things. That's not good, man. Like, it's not good. We got to quit making these guys famous um, and quit granting credibility to these shooters in terms of, yeah, going and killing people is a viable way to express what's frustrating you. We have to stop. So, red flags. In El Paso, the mom called the police voicing concerns about him uh, and the firearm that he purchased five weeks before the shooting. Um, Nothing was done about that. Um, And to me, I think that that boils down to we need to have some connectivity between law enforcement agencies. If we don't have anyone monitoring these 8chan boards where this guy was expressing a lot of his views to other people who sympathize with him, then we should. Surely we do, though. Um... We need to have connectivity between the entities, presumably that are on a federal level, monitoring these things. And, okay, is law enforcement receiving calls of a credible threat of someone who might go commit a shooting? Okay, is this person on these boards? You know, and connecting those dots there. But there was a red flag there, and there, we've seen this numerous times. This happened in Parkland. It happened in Sutherland Springs, I think it was, where there was a guy who got a gun Um, even though he shouldn't have because he had this criminal record from his time in the Air Force, but the law enforcement entities weren't connected. So I think it's the same way with El Paso and and again in Parkland that we need to connect these things and we have to have mechanisms in place to respond to these red flags um, because it's just getting tiresome of how preventable a lot of these things are in terms of just being able to respond to red flags. Uh, as you might not be able to tell, I'm a pretty big fan of red flag laws uh, when done right. Um, e- even though Dan Crenshaw has gotten a lot of hate for his support of him from conservatives, I think that's silly. I think we need to be open to those things and look at not just saying no to them, but okay, is there a way to do this well? Uh, the shooter in Dayton, red flag's also an issue. This is kind of interesting. He knew that he hit, there was red flags against him, so he used a friend to purchase his firearm and the magazine and body armor and stuff for him because he didn't want his parents to find out because he knew that if they found out that they would respond. Um, So he used a friend to do it. So he circumvented the law to acquire the firearms because he knew that there were red flags against him. So the point is, is that there were red flags there too. I mean, like I said, the guy had a kill and a rape list in high school there needed to be something there in terms of monitoring what's he doing, what does he have access to. And his friend, by the way, I think that I'm not a big fan of always just like making examples of people, but there needs to be examples made of people that are willing to help these people get these firearms. His friend didn't know. There's no evidence that he was trying to help out with um, the shooting. And the dude also lied on the forms that he used to get some of these firearms. That was like drug offenses. Um, But still, so that dude needs to be maximally punished. But we need to do something about, again, making sure that we have mechanisms in place that are monitoring people that have expressed uh, intent to harm and violent intent, like this guy did. 
um, until they're no longer a threat. Or if a threat arises or if they do have something happen, that we can have things that respond to them, like with El Paso. You know, Parkland, there was a lot of phone calls of the police. I think, like, lots, um, if I remember right, like maybe dozens. Um, back to red flags again. The dude in Odessa, Midland, the one that just happened, that went on the shooting spree, basically. Dude stole, like, a mail truck eventually at one point in time. Um, that dude was denied a firearm using a background check. So the system worked in terms of the law there, but he, like this shooter in Dayton, circumvented the law. Um, as of this recording, we don't know where he got that gun, um, but he didn't do it legally because he was denied the firearm legally. So in that case, the background check worked, but then he circumvented the law. So what that tells me is, again, um, those background checks do work often, but what we don't need is another law um, because that wouldn't have done anything in Dayton, that wouldn't have done anything in uh, Odessa, because these people circumvented the law. So we need to have other mechanisms that respond to these unstable individuals. You know, I mean, the guy called the FBI like 15 minutes before he started shooting. I mean, he was just nuts. So we need to have means of responding to people that are a threat to themselves or others uh, in a timely way, and we need to connect all of those entities with law enforcement because the enforcement of them is always going to happen within local law enforcement. That's where you're going to get the quickest response. Um Anyway, so those would have helped. I think that there are a lot of shootings. Red flag laws wouldn't help. There are certainly ones where they would help or at least would have had a higher likelihood of preventing them. So location harm, security, um, or minimizing security, um, all of those things, basically soft targets, hard targets. This was one that, again, didn't get much coverage after El Paso, which is a little frustrating. You know, after Parkland, I mentioned in the video because... Uh, I think it was Donald Trump had talked about arming certain teachers and that got a whole bunch of hate um, because no one wanted to have a conversation about resistance to shooters. They just wanted to talk about removing guns. Well, what's frustrating about this in the case of the El Paso shooting is the guy specifically mentions it in his manifesto. So let's just compare Dayton and El Paso here and see that there is a legitimate... Um, there's legitimate data to be derived from this, or a legitimate lesson to be derived from this, at least anecdotally. So, the shooter in El Paso, he says, he says in his manifesto, and I only am using this here because it's instructive. We have this is something we can learn from. Okay, we can specifically learn from this and mitigate this aspect. He says, remember, it is not cowardly to pick low-hanging fruit, aka. Don't attack heavily guarded areas to fulfill your super soldier Call of Duty fantasy. Attack low security targets. Even though you might outgun a security guard or policeman, they likely beat you in armor, training, and numbers. Do not throw away your life on an unnecessarily dangerous target. If a target seems too hot, live to fight another day. So this guy gives explicit instructions to future shooters and says, look, go someplace where you're not going to get shot at. Go, go where there's the least resistance. And so the idea of us removing that aspect from the conversation of, well, what's it look like to increase resistance? A shooter is a force. And the quicker that force runs into an obstacle that stops that force, the more the harm that's done in the meantime is mitigated. And so removing the com from the conversation, well, how do we increase resistance that's effective? Um seems to me silly and 
removing a potentially fruitful piece of the conversation. Now, what I'm not saying is that we need to have everyone walking around with an M16 on their back, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But we do have to have a conversation about security and what's it look like to take that seriously. What's really fascinating about it is he, the dude drove to a Walmart saying, I went here because I knew I wouldn't encounter resistance. And then Walmart just said, hey, we don't want people bringing guns into our stores. Basically further supporting you know, the notion that there's not going to be any resistance there. Now, Walmart can do whatever they want. I'm just saying that there's a little bit of an irony there. That's all. So do what you want with that. But in terms of the damage from Dayton and El Paso, here's the difference. So the shooter is still alive. He surrendered as soon as he saw police or as soon as he met any resistance. 22 dead, 24 injured um, is the latest numbers that I have. So that's a lot of harm, and the dude's still alive. Now, what happened in Dayton? The dude had body armor. He didn't seem to care about the resistance he was going to encounter, and that happens fairly regularly, that people will just want to do all the harm they can and then kind of death by police. That's certainly part of it. So this isn't going to stop or prevent all shootings or not even necessarily the majority of shootings, but it all, but it might prevent um, the harm that's done. So what happened in Dayton? That guy was dead in like 30 seconds, like actually 30 seconds. He was neutralized is what the police said. Um, that's a big deal. And he killed nine and he injured 27. Now, that is that horrific? Yes. Did he screw up a lot of people's lives? Yes. However, is it less than the guy who factored resistance into his plan? Yeah, it sure is. So, And it's less by a pretty significant margin. Um, so in my mind... I don't know what's going on. What is happening? Oh, there we go. Sorry. In my mind, we should take that seriously and look at, well, that guy's dead. He was dead in 30 seconds. Body armor didn't help him. The police put like 50 rounds into him, and he killed less people. So clearly, uh, soft targets versus hard targets is a factor um, in this, and it needs to be part of the conversation. You know, anecdotally, again, in the U.S., there are significantly less break-ins into homes, again, I think I put this in my first video, when the people are home than there is in the U.K. In the U.K., burglars don't factor in, is there people going to be home? Because an occupant that has a firearm that's going to shoot them in the face isn't as big of a factor there as it is here. So what I think they're called like wet break-ins um, when the occupants are home are significantly higher in the UK than they are here because here burglars are like, I don't want to go in there as a person there because I might get shot in the face. So the point is, resistance does matter and it needs to be part of the conversation. Um, so I guess lastly, kind of tie that part together or to tie Dayton and El Paso together and Midland, whatever. You know, these guys are inspiring each other. Um, they're giving each other credibility. The media, by covering them it, as much as they do, as prolific as they do um, is giving this narrative credibility and making it increasingly easier for people to act out their you know pathology. Um, we got to quit making these guys famous, and we need to um, stop focusing on the why, like only when it's convenient. Like El Paso, they've focused on the why a lot, understandably so, by the way, because he's you know he gives us that. But if it matters there, then it needs to matter all over the place. And if the and if the why just is this person is really disturbed. And this is how they chose to act act out that disturbance. Then that needs to be part of it too. Okay. Well, then how do we remove that as an option from the mentally, or how do we help them get the help they need um, before they get to that point? Um, you know, I guess my thoughts are that as long as to wrap this part up, 
as long as the focus is on um, being right or dunking on political opponents instead of saving lives, then these things are going to continue to happen. Um, and we're super div divided right now. This is a really polarizing issue. And there's this notion that you can't compromise with the other side. And certainly there's a form of compromise that's not good. Uh, if your immune system is compromised, it's weakened. Um, it's not strong enough to fight off infections and disease. So that's a bad kind of compromise. But there's also the compromise that's like, if my wife and I don't consistently compromise with each other, then we're going to not last. Our marriage is going to end. That's the kind of compromise we need. Uh, and that if the left and the right can't compromise and come to the table on these issues, then that system is not going to last. It can't be this divided. Um, it's not sustainable is what I'm getting at. So anyway, that's kind of where that comes uh, to a close, that part with El Paso, Dayton. Same things I said in my previous video a year and a half ago, a little more than that now. They're still true. Uh, and as long as we keep focusing on the wrong uh, solutions or wrong talking points, uh, we're going to continue to have these things. And in fact, I would argue they're going to continue to increase. We're going to have more of them. Um, so one thing that can help in, ter in terms of focusing on actual solutions for me is data. I just want to know what are the facts and I want to build a structure of solutions or a structure of conversation or about or around what do the facts say and be guided by facts, not guided by whatever I want to be true or guided by an ideology or whatever narrative or guided by what my side says that we should be guided by. I don't want to do that. I don't think that we should do that. So we need to be guided by facts. And so there's a really great Pew Research article that came out about three weeks ago. It was like 10 facts about gun violence in the U.S. So these are data. This is facts. And this is the type of thing we need to uh, structure our conversations around and structure our potential solutions around, um, whatever those might be. The facts, and I'll put the link to the article in the comments for this in the description. Um, they come from the CDC. They come from the FBI's database. Um, and so first off, uh, the conversation about mass shootings often talks about gun violence. And it brings in numbers that aren't necessarily the same as that. So I want to focus on gun deaths that are murders. Because a lot of times they'll say, well, there's this many gun deaths in the U.S. And then that's part of the mass shooting conversation. But they'll include suicides or accidental uh, discharges in, the, in those numbers. So we have to focus on what are the gun murders? What are the numbers for those? Which is about 14,500, okay? Um, as of 2017. So that's what we're going to look at, the gun murders in the United States, because that's what in includes the mass shootings. And some points on the front end, even though those numbers are higher, the rates are lower and, and have been going down for decades. Um, now, they've started to increase a little bit more in the last four or five years. That includes suicides. Those rates are spiking. And the gun murders and gun deaths generally are spiking. Or not spiking, but they're increasing. But a lot of that uh, is attributed to, we, you know, we have this opioid epidemic. We have increased rates of suicide because of increased depression and anxiety. Um, so there really is what I would say a, a crisis there with our depression and our suicide rates. But that's a different conversation, and that's not part of the mass shooting or gun violence debate, nor, nor should it be. Um, but back to the numbers. The national murder rate average for the U.S. Um, 
is actually fairly high among developed countries. It's 4.6 for every 100,000. So a lot of developed countries will have in the just decimals or maybe 1 point something, 2 point something. We're at 4.6. So it is an accurate statement to say that the U.S. is a violent country and that we have significantly higher uh, murder rates than other developed countries at a 4.6 per 100,000. But as I mentioned in my first video, those numbers are very skewed by high concentrations of murders and violent crime in a few areas. So if you look at the top five deadliest cities in the U.S., those rates are, the average of those five, is 68 per 100,000, which is 15 times the national average. So if we say the U.S. is a really violent country, our murder rate national average is way higher than other Western countries. That's a problem. But then you say that that really high national average is actually super low compared to a few concentrated areas, in this case, the top five being 15 times higher than that national average, then you can say those are skewing the numbers, that it's not a national problem, that this is a problem that's actually centrally located in a few areas, um, and that those are skewing those numbers. Now, most people live in cities, so that makes sense there, but regardless, to say that this is a national problem and not an urban center problem would be an inaccurate statement. And we'll, get, we'll kind of get back to that here in a minute. But the point is, is that the numbers are skewed pretty heavily. And so if they're skewed because of these urban centers, then we have to look at what does the gun violence look like in those urban centers um, and not conflate that with a mass shooting. Um, anyway, using the FBI's definition, about 0.6 of all gun homicides, so that 14,500, um, are from mass shootings. So 0.6 of all gun homicides in the U.S., uh, as of about 2017, were committed uh, as, from a mass shooting. Now, if you use the gun violence archives definition, which is the one that is used in any, um, like if there's like a panel on CNN and they're talking about mass shootings and numbers or anything like that, the definition they use is the gun violence archive definition, which is four more fatalities excluding the shooters. Now, if you use that definition, which is the most common definition, um, gun homicides in the U.S., only 2.5% of them are from mass shootings, the, the gun homicides. Uh, the rest are from individual shootings, uh, the rest of the murders. So this is a popular conversation. It's a hot topic that's focusing on a, from 0.6 to 2.5% of all gun murders in the United States. So... To me, that is an immediate, if we're going to talk about red flags, that's a red flag to me because it's, it's an incredibly small minority of the gun homicides in our country. Uh, from those same FBI CDC, CDC statistics, about 64% are committed with handguns, which is the vast majority. Um, all rifles, so that's scary AR-15s, that's a modified AK-47, but that's also hunting rifles. That's a black powder musket. All rifles make up 4% of all gun homicides in the U.S. as of 2017. 4%. So the thing driving the conversation, which is mass shootings or uh, assault-style weapons um, by proxy, 4% of all gun homicides in the U.S. So even if you solve that problem and you get rid of all of those, there's a, one of the big talk, talking points in these uh, primary debates has been about bringing back an assault rifle ban. 
Get rid of all of them. Remove every single one of them from the United States. You have only solved 4% of the homicides in the U.S. annually. And by the way, that also assumes that those people won't just use a different gun. So the point is, is we're focusing on a minority of uh, the deaths instead of a majority, and we're not going to get to a solution that way. I was researching a different video that I'm going to be doing, and I uh, stumbled upon this statistic from the Chicago Police Department. And so I put it in here because, you know, the national average is weighted by urban centers. Well, here's some good data from an urban center to look at what does gun violence look like there. So in their 2018, the Chicago Police Department's 2018 end-of-year report, they said they confiscated 9,500 illegally owned guns, which is a five-year high. That's a big deal. And also, that equated to like one gun every hour. That's crazy. That's a lot of guns. So they confiscated 9,500 illegally owned firearms. Okay, here's the important part. What they say, quote, Most of these guns were semi-automatic handguns. Goes with that FBI number. But nearly, nearly, not even, but nearly 200 assault-style rifles were recovered. Um, including AK-47 and AR-15 rifles. And while there is still work to be done, the reduction is believed to have contributed to the overall drop in shootings. So, uh, and Chicago, had they did have a drop in shootings in 2018, so that's why they're celebrating this. The point is, they confiscated a bunch of guns, and only less than 200 of them, almost 200, were assault-style rifles, which makes up about 2% of all the guns that were confiscated. So those numbers are in, incredibly um, in line with the FBI and the national numbers generally. So in the places that are weighting our homicide numbers, you'll see the same numbers occurring. This is mostly handguns. The rifles have nothing to do with this or very little to do with it. And talk, focusing on assault-style rifles and assault weapons bans and all these other things isn't going to do much, of, uh, if anything, to impact the numbers. Um, so anyway, the point is, and I, I, I thought this was maybe an interesting kind of metaphor, but if someone says that banning AR-15s or assault weapons uh, would have a meaningful impact on ending mass shootings or ending gun violence in the country, what you can tell them is that I'm sure that their intentions are good and that that would almost be as effective as banning semi-trucks as a way to end car crash fatalities in the U.S. Because semi-trucks, those are involved in about 6% of all car crash fatalities in the U.S. Um, and assault rifles or assault-style we weapons or whatever are involved in 4%. So if you got rid of semis, that would be 50% more effective in ending car fatalities than rifle and getting rid of rifles would be in ending um, gun homicides. So, to kind of wrap up this Pew Research article part, you know, as I said in again in the first video, if anyone that points to one thing, whether it's assault-style weapons, AR-15s, the NRA, or mental health um, as an explanation um, for mass shootings or as a means of solving mass shootings is being reductive, they're not looking at the data, and they're misinforming you. Um, they might be doing it on accident, they might be doing it on purpose, but the point is, is that they're misinformed so if you do care about these things, if you do care about helping people, if you do care about making a difference in people's lives, which I think most people do, then it has to be centered on data. It has to be centered on facts. Um, anything else isn't going to be productive. 
So the date is here. I'll I'll link it. You guys can look at that. Decide for yourselves if this was a a, a, a accurate representation of the facts. But my personal view is that if we only focus on rifles, if we only focus on mass shootings, then we're not really going to have a meaningful impact on people's lives or have a meaningful impact on potentially saving lives. Um, you know, I was. In 2016, there was about 3,500 shootings that took place in Chicago. Banning assault-style rifles or anything like that would do very little to help the victims of those shootings. 3,500 in that one city in a year, that's crazy. Um, we, we need to have a more robust conversation about this. So lastly, to kind of keep things in perspective, I was looking it up. Um, you know, I understand the media covers things that are newsworthy. I get that. I don't slight them for that. This isn't a critique of, of what they cover necessarily. But accidental falls account for over 120 times more deaths in the U.S. each year than mass shootings do. 120 times um, just from people falling down on accident and dying. Now, most of that is elderly people, but still, that's 120 times more deaths than mass shootings. And accidental poisonings account for over 215 times more deaths annually in the U.S., than mass shootings. And that's, this is using that loose definition of mass shootings. That's not the FBI's definition. So those two things combined are 335 times more deaths in the U.S. than quote-unquote mass shootings. But no one cares about accidental falls. No one cares about accidental poisonings. Um, so the point is we just have to keep it in perspective. Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted out something similar um, after, I think it was El Paso, and he got a bunch of hate. But all he was saying is, look, you know, we have to keep these things in perspective. I understand that this is sensational, and it does deserve coverage, but we might be blowing up or expanding out the impact of this numerically in terms of things that are actually killing people in the U.S. It might be getting disproportionate coverage. And the other thing I would challenge you is that, you know, unless you find yourself equally fired up uh, to sign a petition or go to a rally or vote for a politician who is in favor of ending or reducing accidental poisonings in the U.S. or accidental falls in the U.S. because something has to be done, unless you get equally as fired up about that as you do about assault rifle bans or whatever, then I would say that perhaps um, you're not, that that's a more emotionally driven um, perspective than a data-driven perspective. It's not to say we shouldn't care. It's not a contest. The point is, is what amount of weight are we putting on one issue over another and are we looking at what will actually help people by looking at what's actually hurting them? Or are we just looking at what's the most sensational thing in the moment? So moving on to the NRA, um, I wanted to, to incorporate that into this because naturally after any of these shootings, one of the big talking points is we have to get the NRA out of politics. They are complicit in this. Some group in San Francisco just labeled them a domestic terrorist organization. And to be honest, I didn't know anything about the NRA's... Um, campaign contributions, how much uh, leverage they have in politics. But I wanted to know because I wanted to have an informed opinion about it. So I researched them uh, on a website called Open Secrets. I'd encourage you to go there. I'll put a link. And Open Secrets is great. They've got uh, tons of campaign information because all this stuff has to be made public. Um, and so I, I looked up the numbers and so we'll, we'll just put the numbers out there. But I'll tell you on the front end, I don't have a dog in this fight. Like I said, I didn't really have a, a view either way going in. The closest I would say is that my initial gut feeling was that 
they probably give money to people that agree with them instead of buying politicians. You know, no one who goes into politics just has no opinion on guns and then gets bought by the NRA. At least that seemed uh, something that would be intuitive to me. It seemed to make more sense they would give to people that agree with them, but I wanted to know for sure. I didn't know. So, like I said, as my dad would say, I, I don't have a dog in this fight, so I just want to look at the facts. Here are the facts. So, since 1990, that's as far back as the data goes, that I was able to find, the NRA has donated uh, $22.8 million to political campaigns, split 84-15 among Republicans and Democrats. So, 84% of that 22.8 mil went to Republicans, 15% went to Democrats. Um, in in 2018, uh, that number was 98.2. So that's a big shift, right? So they went, the average is 84.15. In the most recent election, the midterms in 2018, they did 98% to Republicans, 2% to Democrats. Now, what that tells me is that it seems like Democrats or, or Republicans, whatever, that the, that the issue changed. That the, that the way people viewed the issue and the conversations about gun control specifically, that, that that changed. And so the NRA started supporting people that agreed with them or stopped supporting people that were starting to disagree with them. You know, if they were just buying politicians, I wouldn't expect those numbers to change much because you bought the politician. Why would the averages change? Um, but either way, so that's where that is. In 2018, so we're going to focus on that one since so that's the most recent midterm election. In 2018, the NRA donated between con congressional and Senate campaigns an average of 3600 bucks per candidate. So to individual candidates is an average of $3,600. So that's Ted Cruz. That's any other uh, Republican you might recognize the name of that was running. Um, they, they donated an average of $3,600. Um, now, my initial thought was, there's no way anyone's going to get bought for $3,600 but then I remembered that uh, those two Nigerian dudes that uh, Jussie Smollett or Juicy Smollier, if you watch the Chappelle stand-up, those two guys got paid like three grand to commit a fake hate crime on Jussie Smollett. So I guess anything's possible. So maybe the NRA is buying people for $3,600, but that seems unlikely to me. Um, regardless, anything's possible. So the point is that if we're going to look at the NRA as a an organization that's donating to campaigns and exerting heavy influence on politicians, those are the numbers. So if you say this is what they're doing, then those numbers are reflective of how they're doing it. Okay? So I'm not putting a judgment, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but if that's the view you want to hold, then you have to say that those numbers are how they're doing it. Uh, in 2018, they donated about 860000 bucks to Republicans. Um, out of an $880,000 total. Now let's look at another organization. Let's look at another issue that's pretty contentious between the left and the right. And that would be the topic of abortion. So Planned Parenthood would be kind of in that same vein of an organization that donates to campaigns that's an action group that tries to raise awareness and supports abortion, supports Roe v. Wade, the same way the NRA uh, would be advocating for the Second Amendment and re and supports gun rights, gun ownership, etc. So, I think it's safe to say that Planned Parenthood operates in that sphere the same way that the NRA does in terms of who they give and why they give. Um, 
In 2018, so if we look at them as an organization that would be on the other side, but in the same general sphere of issues, Planned Parenthood um, spent an average of $2,800 in congressional and Senate races, but about 100% of it went to Democrats. Um, now, the numbers for their averages, it only goes back to 96, but it's the same trend. So they, in the early 2000s, were giving like 7 to 12% to Republicans. But uh, that began to sharply decline in 2006 to about the 0% you see today, where 100% of it basically is going to Democrats. Um, so, again, they, that tells me that they didn't purchase Republicans or Democrats, that the issues might have changed. So that the way we talk about abortion over the last decade or two has probably changed the same way we talk about guns. But they gave an average of 2800 so that's less than the NRA, to individual campaigns. Um, 2800 compared to 3600 so that's $800 less. Um, but here's the total spending. So like I said, in 2018, the NRA spent about 880000 total. That's individual campaign contributions. That's contribution to PACs. Uh, political action uh, committees, um, everything it was 880 grand. It's a lot of money. In that same election cycle, Planned Parenthood spent 7.18 million dollars on individual campaigns and on PACs and other organizations. 7.18 million, and of that, 5,700 went to Republicans. Now, I'm not saying you know they can spend however they want, but the point is, is that they outspent the NRA by eight times uh, in that election cycle. So if you're just looking at contributions, if you're just looking at money spent, who exerts more influence in the political sphere in the 2018 election? Planned Parenthood or the NRA? There is no way you can argue that the NRA exerts more influence than Planned Parenthood does. Now, I'm not saying that Planned Parenthood's buying politicians, and I'm not saying the NRA is. In fact, here's an unpopular opinion. I think people should be able to give however much they want to campaigns. I do. I just don't think it should be as freaking hard as it was for me to get that information. Now, Open Secrets is fairly intuitive to use, but there's a lot of terms I had to look up. There's a lot of jargon. you got to look at the PACs and the organizational contributions, etc. But the point is... I think people should be able to get as much as they want from whatever companies. If BP wants to donate $50 million to some uh, politician, they should be able to do that. But I want that information front and center on their website. I want that listed whenever you go to the polls. Here's the top 20 contributors to this person's campaign. Um, and then we can decide. Because my guess is, is that if you saw that a politician took an exorbitant amount of money from an organization, you would say, that's a lot. They might be beholden to them. I'm not sure I want to support that. Um, so that's my personal view on it. However, if you do want to hold the view that the NRA is bad, that they are complicit in buying politicians and complicit in these mass shootings, then you have to also believe that about Planned Parenthood. You cannot hold those two views in contention. You have to say Planned Parenthood's doing the same. And you have to concede that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Nancy Pelosi all only support abortion because they're bought and paid for by Planned Parenthood. The same way that, that Ted Cruz only supports gun rights or Mitch McConnell only supports gun rights because he's bought and paid for by the NRA. Now, I don't think either of those statements are true. 
But if you hold one, you have to hold the other. Because the reality is, I think Bernie Sanders took like three grand from Planned Parenthood in 2018. Nancy Pelosi took 5,000, which is more than the average NRA campaign contribution. So if you think that the NRA is buying politicians and they're complicit in mass murders, then you have to say that Planned Parenthood is buying politicians and that those same politicians are complicit in um, the mass murder of children, depending on your view on that. So all I'm saying is we have to be um, logically consistent on this, okay? And again, to just say, well, the NRA is doing this, well, maybe, maybe. I don't think the numbers support that. I'll link you to the website and you can decide for yourself, but I don't think the numbers support that. And again, whether it's NRA, AR-15, mental illness, red flag, I don't care. If you're only focusing on one thing and not on the, the topic as a whole, and you're not seeing if data supports what you're saying, then you're not actually participating in a conversation that's going to be meaningful or productive. And I'm not going to trust that person, right or left. I don't care. Um, if a person on the right is only saying mental illness, I'm not going to trust that person because I'm saying that's really simplistic. If a person on the left is only saying NRA assault weapons, I don't trust that person because that is too simplistic. So you have to look at these things and look at, say, what does the data support and be driven by that? Not just dunking on your political opponents, not just you know sticking to your side's piece of it. Um, so kind of in conclusion, you know, honestly, this is exhausting. This topic was exhausting. Researching this was exhausting. Just like the first video I did on it was exhausting. Um, I know I'm not alone in feeling that. I'm not complaining um, necessarily. But what's the most exhausting part to me is just seeing, well, here are facts. The facts are here and the conversation is about 400 miles that way. Why is that? And being frustrated by that disconnect. Now, you might have different opinions on what to do with those facts, but I don't even see that. I don't even see people focusing on the facts at all. I see misrepresentations of facts or, again, those little fast food sound bites because it sounds really good in a viral clip from a CNN panel more than anything else. Um, but these things are diffi difficult to deal with, and this isn't about guns. This is about lives um, and people that are dying. And if you want to focus on helping those people, that's how you have to gear the conversation. Um, you know, I tried to make a video right after El Paso, but I, I couldn't. I, and I couldn't because I couldn't hold it together. I kept getting to the part where uh, I was talking about the mom who, and the parent thing is mom and dad that were shielding their kid while they're back to school shopping. And I just couldn't. I couldn't make it past that. Um, it's horrific. It's incredibly saddening. Um, by sheer happenstance, on whenever the Dayton shooting was happening, I was playing Xbox. It's just me and some other dude were in an Xbox Live party, and I had my my phone. Uh, I was listening to the news coverage from it, and the other guy. It was the first time I'd played with him um, before. He said, "Are you, do you live in?" are you in Dayton? Do you live in Dayton? I said, no, man, I'm listening to the coverage of the shooting. And he was shooting, what shooting? And this guy who lives in Dayton was hearing from me, some dude on the internet for the first time about the shooting that was taking place. And so then he's talking to me about how his brother lives just a few minutes away, walking distance from the Oregon district where the shooting happened. And so for the next couple hours, he was just like, there'd be these moments of big, like chunks of silence where we're playing 
Um, and then, you know, he kind of processed, man, I wish they were posting the list of the victims' names and my, no one's texting me back. Uh, do I need to go wake my wife up? You know, and I'm saying, look, dude, the reason no one's texting you back is probably because they're asleep. Um, you would have heard something from someone if something happened. You know, we, I, I think, I'm sure everything's fine. But that guy was legitimately and understandably, he was scared, concerned, um, and trying to figure out, does this impact me? Because it's right here on my doorstep. So I get it. These are horrific and they have extreme impacts on people's lives. Um, but if we're only focusing on little sound bites, we're not going to prevent these things from happening in the future. Um, you know, this conversation is as polarizing as it is depressing. Um, and that polarization uh, is due to increasingly strong opinions about these things, understandably so. This is an important topic. However, I think that we have to think about how we express our opinions and how we have these opinions. Um, you're entitled to your opinion. I'm entitled to mine. We're entitled to the free expression of our opinion. We're entitled to freely associate with people that share our opinions. That's part of the beauty of living in this country is we have the freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of association. Um, but we also have to draw a distinction whenever we begin to tether our opinion to legislation that would force that opinion on other people. Um, so if you're going to tether those opinions to legislation, you need to make damn sure you know what you're talking about, just like I do. I didn't want to talk about the NRA until I had any facts on it. I don't like talking about any of this stuff. I don't like talking about anything unless I have the facts on it because that has to be what's supreme. We all have to ultimately submit to reality. Um, and the less facts you have, then, then the less I think that you should be advocating for your opinion being forced onto other people. I was going to do a separate video about this, and I still might, um, but the metaphor that comes to my mind, and I think it's relevant here, is you know, kind of a thought experiment where let's say someone hands you a menu for a restaurant you've never been to. And they say, hey, look at the, these food items on this menu. You know, there's a name, and then there's a description of the items. Just kind of give us your general view on what sounds appealing, what you would order, and what doesn't sound appealing, and what you would you know be grossed out by and would never order. You know, you put checks or X's or whatever, and then you give the menu back to them, and they they say, okay, cool, thanks. That's you've now expressed your opinion on something that you're not super well informed about, but you know you can read the description and read the name, and then take that a step further and and ask, okay, would you feel comfortable? banning other people from ordering those menu items or removing those menu items entirely based on that uninformed opinion. Would that be right? Would that be moral to do that? I would say no. No, it wouldn't. Now, let's say you worked there and you knew that the chicken was never refrigerated or that 100% of people that ate the oysters got food poisoning or this one chef that dealt with all the salad stuff never washed his hands. The, the more information you would have there, then the more... Um, you would be qualified to use your opinion to potentially guide the actions of others and say, yeah, I would never uh, suggest anyone order the chicken from the menu because they don't refrigerate that. They're going to get sick. Uh, or you probably shouldn't order the salad because that guy doesn't wash his hands. So the knowledgeability and how informed that opinion is is directly tied to how 
I guess, qualified or how right it would be to, to legislate that opinion, basically. Um, so the point is we need to know that where our opinions um, end and legislation begins um, and keep those in an open hand. And, and we have to listen to the opinions of others. So I'll just leave you the, with this quote from John Stuart Mill that I think is incredibly necessary um, today. I, I, I quote John Stuart Mill a lot for good reason. Um, but here, here's what he says. He says, He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good, and no one may have been able to refute them. But he is equally, um, but if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the other side, if he does not so much as even know what they are, he has no grounds for preferring either opinion. In other words, if he can only articulate his side really well, and he doesn't know how to articulate the opinions of others or the counterpoints, then he has no reason to prefer one to the other because he only knows one part of it. He goes on to say, Nor is it enough that he should hear the opinions of adversaries from his own teachers, presented as they state them, and accompanied by what they offer as refutations. He must be able to hear them from persons who actually believe him. He must know them in their most plausible and persuasive forms. In other words, if the only way that you're acquainted with the opinions of people that disagree with you is from people that agree with you and they're just saying, well, here's what they think and here's why it's wrong, that's not good enough. You need to be able to articulate the other side in such a way that they would say, yes, that is exactly what I believe. Um, and if you can't do that, if you don't know the other side, then you don't really know your own. Um, so you need to be informed on what the counterpoints are in their strongest form. That's, as Mill says, in their most plausible and persuasive form. Um, and so if you don't know the legitimate counterpoints to your opinion, then they should probably remain that, your opinion, um, and not be tethered to legislation or uh, control of the actions of others. So we have to have the humility to make that distinction and say, look, I don't know enough about this. To advocate for this or that policy. Um, anyway, food for thought. I hope that was somewhat informative. Um, I know there's a lot of facts, a lot of data there. And again, it's not sexy. It's not fun to sit and listen to, you know, this percent and this data and this decimal, but it matters because those represent the problems. Um, and only by knowing the problems can we know what we should do in response to them. So if you disagree, I'm going to put all the links um, to what I cited in the comments. If you disagree or if you think I misrepresented something or if there's some data I didn't cover or maybe didn't consider, put that in there. Tell me I'm wrong or tell me how I'm wrong. That's fine. I'm open to that. I, I want to, like I said, ultimately be guided by the facts and not by ideology. Um, so yeah, if you like this, if you enjoyed this, if you were able to make it through, please like, share, subscribe. I'm going to upload it to my YouTube channel. Um, you can share the link to that. And if you're on Twitter, uh, please give me a follow. Uh, obviously, I'm pretty biased in this opinion, but uh, I think my Twitter is pretty good, so I think you should check it out. That's it, My Mundane Mind. I'll put a link to that. Uh, or if you disagree, you get on there and you're like, all of your tweets are stupid. And I